Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 199th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Morgan Rochard. Morgan is the founder of Origin Wealth Advisors, an independent RIA based in Austin, Texas, that oversees nearly $35 million in assets under management for 25 affluent clients. What's unique about Morgan, though, is her barbell approach to doing good with a focused practice that deliberately works with no more than 30 clients at a time, which at a minimum fee of $12,000 per client allows her to generate $300,000 of revenue working only 10 to 15 hours a week so that she can both raise her family as a 30-something mother and create a book and a podcast to also help the masses that can't afford her high-service solution. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Morgan has structured her advisory firm, why she deliberately crafted an approach of working with just a small number of high-value clients to whom she can provide a high-touch service, the reason she structures her fee based on net worth but views investment management as an essential service in the solution, and how she structured a financial coaching business to be entirely separate from her RIA entity. We also talk about Morgan's actual financial planning process with clients, why she structures her financial planning approach to start first with what's important to the client and second about what's important to financial planning itself, the way Morgan has integrated financial life planning into an initial three-meeting process with clients, why Morgan's focus with clients in their 30s and 40s is all about what they will accomplish in the next 12 to 18 months and not 20 to 30 years out for retirement, and how Morgan's shorter-term approach has fueled her financial planning referrals. And be certain to listen to the end, where Morgan shares her own journey through the financial planning industry, why she felt she had to go back to get her CFP certification despite already having her CFA marks, the way she rigorously structures her days and week to stay focused, and why Morgan's secret to hyper-efficiency is all about deliberately scheduling less time than she thinks she'll need to accomplish a task, and then challenging herself to get it done in that limited time window anyway. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Morgan Rochard. Welcome, Morgan Rochard, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on and and talk about what I feel like I'm starting to see as a new theme around how some advisors craft their firms. It's 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 something I'm starting to call the barbell approach. Maybe you can help me today come up with a better name for it. But I, you know, we're all familiar with sort of the the, the barbell image, right? Like the thin bar and the and the two big lumps on either end. You know, we often talk about that and things like making bonds, bond portfolios with barbell approach of very short and very long duration. And I feel like I'm seeing a similar phenomenon start to occur with certain firms that that take a similar approach to how they try to help consumers and and serve the marketplace. And and at one end of the barbell, you have this subset of usually fairly affluent clients that pay some pretty good fees, do a lot of work for them, deliver a lot of value, but run a very profitable practice from it. And, And then at the other end of the barbell, because we now have a small subset of high value clients that pay very well and can really drive the business with a limited amount of time, at the other end of the barbell, then we can go do 
broad good. I've seen people do coaching and courses and podcasts and, and content sites and, and all these different things that are built to be one to very, very many, very broad reaching, often with people that pay very little or may pay nothing at all or may not even be able to afford to, to pay an advisor. But the math works because we've got the other end of the barbell to balance it out with this subset of high value clients. You know, I've I've seen kind of from afar as your firm has has been building that you have moved yourself into I think this this kind of barbell approach as well with a focused practice of high value clients and then this sort of large doing good arm that's reaching out there as well and and I, I'm just fascinated by both the the evolution of it and and kind of the strategy of it to say that you want to build this way. And and to be able to have the focus to do it. So looking forward to the discussion and, and would love to just in kicking off, have you share a little bit about the like the spectrum of what what you do? What are all the different things that Morgan does? All the things I do. I mean, I do quite a lot. So <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> we got a little while. We can just tuck in and get ready for the ride. <laughs> So my firm started six years ago and it wasn't, it definitely wasn't the barbell approach, right? I was, I didn't have any money. I didn't really have any clients. I even moved in with my parents to make the math work so that I could have an extended runway to get my firm running up for two years. And I pretty much did everything that I advise my small business owners to do, like cut your expenses as much as possible, and then just try to drive revenues in really any way that you can. And that was... I mean, it was successful at the beginning, for sure. I was able to take on clients, but they weren't really the right clients for my firm. But I kept them on, right? Because like, for the most part, I still need <laughs> I still needed some income coming in to get the business gonna, going. And so my firm over the last six years has made many, many different changes and evolutions to be what it is today. And then to finally be, it's like, well, not its final form, but the form it is right now where I have a successful financial planning practice. And I also have a second business that does coaching, has a podcast, is releasing a book, and I guess doing all the things about the barbell approach that you just mentioned. But really, it was, there was like a, a change in my mindset around year three, where I realized that if I didn't raise fees, and I didn't start going after the clients that I wanted to go after, then I was going to drown, really. And I was going to be pretty unfulfilled in something that I found super fulfilling. And like, I, it, it was a lot of, I guess, soul searching, <laughs> for lack of a better word, just because like I didn't want to go back to working at these lar- at the large firms I had been at. I worked at Merrill Lynch for a couple of years. I also was at UBS for a while. And I liked the work. I just didn't like where I was doing it. And so it made sense for me to start my own firm. And there are actually, there are certain things about that model that make sense that at the time when I first started my firm, I didn't think were true. And one of those is is actually going after a higher, like a higher net worth of client. And the more I focused on that and really trying to add not the Merrill Lynch kind of value, but real true financial planning value for these clients, the more I realized that I can charge a premium for that service and serve just a really good group of clients who I love and who love me and who I can be really close with. And my practice is now a super high touch. I talk to my clients at least three times a year, sometimes four they pretty much can have access to me whenever they want. There's emails all the time. There's texting, there's phone calls, you know, there's, there's off schedule stuff that happens. And I can do that because I only have 25 clients in my practice. And I probably will never have more than 30 clients in my practice. And that's by design. And that took 
really the last three years of me honing everything that I was doing and making sure that I was picking and choosing who I really wanted to work with to create what I have today. And on the other side of that is my other business, which is Money Owners. And that was like, it's like a need I had where I realized I couldn't serve that many clients in my financial planning practice while still having the time to be with my family and spend the amount of time that I want to spend with my clients while also reaching a wider group of people. I feel like I have a lot of good knowledge and things to share with really the world. And I wanted to do that in a way where I could reach as many people as possible. So out of that, my podcast was born and also my coaching practice, because the other thing I realized was that people would come in for financial planning, but they didn't actually need financial planning. (laughs) They just need a little bit of coaching to kind of get themselves on the right track. So people who come in through Origin, maybe who find me on NAPFA or find me on XY Planning Network, who really aren't a good fit for Origin Wealth Advisors, I always mention money owners and I say, hey, look, I'm not trying to like sell you on anything here, but I do offer this other service that you'd be really great for. And I like you and want to work with you. What do you think about that? So that's kind of how how that all came about. And that's a lot easier for me because there's no there's no compliance headaches behind the scenes in that practice. There's I don't have to report on those clients. It's not like the same RA head overhead that we all have. And it's just kind of a really simple way to to disperse knowledge to people who really need it and want it. Very cool. Very cool. So, so I'm really curious to dig further on kind of both ends of this barbell. Let, let's start on the origin, which is the advisory firm side and what you're doing there. So you, you said 25 clients. Yes. Which I would imagine perked up some ears of <laughs> just not a huge number, right? I mean, we know advisors out there, dozens, hundreds, once in a blue moon, like a thousand clients, probably most of whom they haven't talked to in 10 or 20 years, but you know, we tend to accumulate a lot of clients. So talk to us more about this focused 25 client practice. Yeah. So I have, I have 25 clients. My median fee is about 12,300 per client and net worth is usually around 2 million. Somewhere around there is like average net worth in my practice. I'm going to gross 300 grand this year. And I only work, I really only work on average about 10 hours a week. So like on a net basis, I will, I'll basically make 400 an hour, like actual 400 an hour when I'm working, (laughs) which is really nice. And I, that's actually the metric I always use in my practice is like, okay, what's my true hourly rate after expenses? Like what's the rate that I'm reporting for, for tax purposes, basically. And that, that number really matters to me because that number shows really like, to me, it's like, that's that's the golden number because it shows me how hard I'm working and and what I'm receiving in exchange for that. And when that number starts to go down, I realize I'm putting in a lot more hours and then I start to reevaluate whether or not those hours are things that I want to be doing or if there's things that I could be outsourcing or if I need to actually bring in a new client to raise my hourly rate. So these are all kind of things that I think about. And I have a relatively young practice. I mean, the median age of my practice is 41 years and I have really tight-knit relationships with all my clients. So I'm the one of the first calls when a client is pregnant or they want to buy a new home or they're getting married. We've been invited, like my husband and I have gone to clients' weddings. We're, we're part of the family. It's not just, 
oh, this is my financial advisor that I call. It's it's more than that. And and these are like really deep relationships that I've that I've formed with my clients to the point where when my one of my clients and I were pregnant at the same time and she gave birth before me, she even gave me a bunch of her newborn clothing <laughs> <laughs> because she was like, Oh, you're having a son too. And like he grew out of all this, like here, take this. And she sent us clothing for like the first six months, <laughs> which was really sweet. She totally didn't have to do that. But that's just the kind of relationships that I have in my practice. So and I want to keep it that way, which is the other reason why I focus on my my hourly rate and how many hours I'm working. And it's because I want to also spend time with my family. I have a two and a half year old son at home and I we have another baby along the way. And I just want to make sure that I'm also the mom that I want to be, not just a business owner. Very cool. Very cool. So I'm fascinated by this model. 25 clients, 12,000 plus per client. So $300,000 a year, right? That that math is is pretty straightforward. But as you've noted, like you know, most advisory firms at the end of the day, the biggest constraint is the number of of clients. Like it's just you know, we, we service them to varying degrees and some firms are higher touch than others and 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 obviously yours is very high touch. But at the end of the day, like it's just the sheer number of clients is the biggest driver on on time limitations for most. And so when you've got this structure of I'm I'm simply focusing on 25 high value clients. You know, three hundred thousand dollars of gross revenue is is higher than the average at I think every single independent broker dealer except Commonwealth, who's a little bit higher than that average. So, like, you've got 25 focused clients and are driving more revenue than literally the majority of advisors at all broker dealers. I suspect for RAs as well, but we don't have as good data on the uh, on RAs and the aggregates. Just by getting super focused on, I'm going to find my 25 great clients. Yeah, I mean it. It's kind of just a function of how also how long I've been around. I think I think the the more years that I get under my belt, the more confidence I get in charging more fees and searching for the appropriate clients. Like I've kind of gotten to a point where I I love the 25 that I have. I don't really feel like I need to add another client. So if somebody's going to come in and work with me, like it has to be a really interesting case and be worth my time. So at this point like my minimum fee is $12,000, but I don't, I almost don't even feel like taking somebody on at my minimum is even unless it's a really interesting special case. It doesn't even feel like that worth my time or unless that person is just really special and we connect really well. Right. So it's kind of one of those things where it like, I guess the habits kind of, they reinforce <laughs> the more yeah. you do it, the more you keep doing it. And then the more you get into a place where you're able to really hold the line and say, okay, this is what I want for my life and my practice. Interesting. And, and well, I guess sort of two questions. Like, how do you arrive at $12,000 minimum fee? And, and just what does fee structure look like? Like, does everybody pay a flat $12,000 rate or like varying rates as you move them over time? How does pricing actually work for you? Yeah, there's varying rates. So right now, if somebody were to come into my practice today, it's a flat fee based on net worth. It's assessed annually and the minimum fee is, is 12000 and if it's $2 million is my break point. So above $2 million, you pay 0.6% and below you would pay the flat fee of $12,000. 
Most of my clients are on a similar structure to that. For the most part, everyone is pretty close to being on that flat fee based on net worth. I have a few left over from AUM when I first started my business that it just didn't make sense. Like it would actually be more expensive to switch them over to the net worth or like we don't we don't gather enough of their financial planning data to justify doing the net worth every single year and everything like that. So there's some clients who like they came in at the beginning because my my practice was investment focused and that's kind of what they're there for and they didn't really want any more services and we didn't move them over. For everybody else, they've moved over. When I first introduced the flat fee based on net worth, I had a sliding scale where it started at 0.65% and it started to go down as net worth went up. And then I changed that because I just realized it was just too, I couldn't remember who was Charlie, (laughs) who was like net worth was what and what the fee structure was. It was hard for me to explain. And it's like, it's really bad when you're in a meeting trying to get somebody to come work with you when like, you can't even explain your fee structure. So for me, the most important thing was like, how can I keep this simple where I could just say like, Hey, this is what I charge and say it with confidence and, you know, take it or leave it. If you don't want to work with me, great. Like there's plenty of other financial advisors out there. You want to work with me? This is what I charge. And that's that's kind of how it's been. So there are some clients definitely who are below the 12,300 mark. And then there are a bunch that are above that, too. So like the, the fee definitely, I mean, it averages out, of course. But And, and so when you talk about charging 0.6% of net worth, like how does that like how does that work? How are you getting to that number? Like, you know, once a year you go through and update their plan and try to estimate asset values, what happens when they've got businesses or real estate or things that are not always the easiest to to value? Like, what does this look like in practice to actually create a structure where you literally bills 0.6% of net worth? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not about nickel and diming people. <laughs> uh, that's just not how I do it in my practice. So basically when a client buys a piece of property, unless we have like true data to show otherwise, we pretty much just use the price that they paid. And I do that for a number of reasons, just because, A, we don't really know what they would get in the market. B, right, there's expenses associated with them actually selling their real estate. And C, I never want a regulator to be like, where'd you come up with that number? So it's one of those things where we slide the net worth across the table or email it to a client. They agree on the numbers and we agree on the numbers. And then we always round down a little bit. Same thing with businesses. Unless the client has an appraisal on their business, we generally, I just don't include it because I just don't want to be in a situation where we're making up some number and I can't explain it. So if that means that my fee is a little bit lower, it's a little bit lower. But I feel like I'm still charging enough to justify the work that I'm doing and to feel like I'm being well compensated. So I've never I've never felt like I'm in a situation where clients are underpaying me just because we didn't charge on like their stereo system that's sitting in the next room, you know? <laughs> but like it's a really rare boombox from the 80s. Like yeah. you can't. <laughs> You can't get those things anymore. Like that's a that's a high value item. Totally. I actually do have a client who has he has his pinball machines that are like the vintage pinball ones, and oh. he always he wants to always include them in his net worth. And I'm like, okay, okay, like you're gonna pay more. And he's like, yeah, I don't care. I just they they mean something to me. <laughs> so I need do. I need credit for my pride of ownership. Like I, you know, high quality Adams Family machine can run you almost fifteen thousand dollars. Like that is exactly there are some really nice pinball machines out there. Totally. <laughs> so. And so you're updating this, you say annually, like once a year, you're trying to go through and sort of peg peg appropriate values to everything and then put this back out to them. Yeah, exactly. So the idea behind annually was that we do it anyways. I do it anyways in my practice. I was going to show them their net worth annually regardless. The difference between me showing it to them and assessing the fee on it is that we have to agree on it. 
and that there's there's usually a little bit more of a back and forth of, hey, can you look at this? Can you make sure that everything on here is accurate? What do you think about these numbers? I'm super happy. Like I always round down to the nearest 100,000 just because like cash, you know, comes in and out. So like we don't count the 30 grand that just came in that's going to go out and go buy something basically. <laughs> and we do include liabilities, like even a client's credit cards end up on there just because they're linked up through e-money, which is what I use in my practice. So like that stuff kind of changes day to day. So I just, I never want a client to feel like they're, you know, that like we're doing it to the penny <laughs> just because that's not a really good experience. And everyone right. always likes when, you know, oh, hey, I'm worth, you know, 2.85 million. Don't worry, I'm going to round you down to 2.8. Like it's like a nice, here's a couple hundred bucks off. All right. Very quiet. Cool. I, I think you, you make an, an interesting point of just, Yes, we all want to make sure we we charge our fees and we get paid what we're worth, and 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 obviously the dollars have to add up to to make it work for the business. But but there comes a point where you know you can have I'll call it more complex and precise fee schedules, but it takes more time. There can be more hassle, and clients potentially even get frustrated when they feel like it's too aggressive and they're being nickel and dimed for everything. Or you can just get to a look. I know we're in the right neighborhood. The, the math is working just fine. Like, I don't need to figure out how to calculate rounded to the next nearest 50,000 so the nearest 100,000 because then I could get like an extra $172 per client. There, there comes a point where it's working well enough that there's just value in the simplicity. There's value in, I think, as you said, just being able to confidently and easily explain to clients like, here's how it works. We pretty much always err in your favor and the values can be so awesome. You're not going to care. Yeah, definitely. That. And also it's also about the client experience. Like I, I tried to imagine being on the other side of that of like, here's your net worth, by the way, your fees going up. It's like, oh man, like my net worth went up. Oh, but I'm supposed to be excited about this. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's not pleasant, right? You're like right. kind of linking something of, with like charging fees, which is, has a lot of friction around it and, and pleasantness with something that's supposed to be really pleasant. Like, hey, your net worth actually increased by 15% this year. So like when I had that in mind of like how I would want the, that information to be presented to me, that was, that was kind of how I thought about presenting it to a client was like, Hey, I still want you to be really excited about this. And here's why, because you did all of these awesome things throughout the year. And we and I usually include certain things in the email of like specific things that they did that were really great so that they feel good about it. And that it's not just like, hey, I'm charging you a three hundred extra dollars this year. And and then how does it actually work from a a billing perspective? Like how are you drawing out twelve thousand dollars? Is this Paid monthly? Is this paid quarterly? Is this paid annually? Are you doing it from investment accounts? Are you doing it from bank accounts? Like, how do you administer this fee? Yeah, so it's quarterly for pretty much everybody. I have two clients left on a subscription service that I used to offer that I no longer offer, but everybody else is quarterly. Some clients like to pay it directly from their investment account. So that's where we do it. Some clients don't want to do that. They want to use advice pay, and therefore I offer advice pay as well. I'm super happy to do either one. I have clients also who they're business owners and they pay part of the fee from their business because we do a lot of business planning and it just makes sense because they can deduct it. So we do that, like I'll do that as well, where maybe the client will pay part of it from advice pay just because they're paying it out of their business and they'll pay the rest of it out of their investment accounts. Okay. And so like from a, it's not scalable, right? Like <laughs> it's not like the advisor who has a thousand clients and you know, they're just deducting the AUM. There's a little bit more thoughtfulness, especially cause like the fee changes every, every year. So like I have a process in my CRM that both my employees know about, and we have basically a workflow of like what happens when the fee is going to change. Because basically like if we assess net worth 
every year for somebody on, I don't know, July 7th, let's just say. Like we have to make sure that every year on July 7th, we are assessing that net worth because we don't, I don't ever want a client to think I'm cherry picking a date for starters. I also don't want a, a regulator to think that. So we just do it on the anniversary every single year of the first net worth. And then also like, we have to have in our CRM basically like when the next fee is going to be charged because sometimes the fee will get assessed, but for one reason or another, they might have one more quarter that's left on the old fee. So we don't want them to pay three quarters on the old fee and then one quarter on the new fee because that's not that's not the right way of doing it. They were supposed to pay that fee, previous fee for a year. So there's certain things in there. It's not so simple <laughs> um, and it does take time, but because we have processes in place, I mean, we, I don't think about it that much, but the processes did take time to get into place of like, oh, hey, like, I'm looking up the same thing a hundred times. Like maybe we just need a workflow for this. <laughs> right. And so you're not necessarily, not all clients are necessarily on an annual cycle because they're actually running, starting on the anniversary date from when they joined you and then going forward on those anniversary dates. Is, is yeah. that when you, is that just when you reset the net worth or is that literally when you bill? So different clients are getting billed on different days or different months throughout the year because it's all based on their anniversary dates. So clients all get billed on the same schedule. It's it's basically just a quarterly January, April, July. Okay. Something. Yeah. Is it July? Yes, July. Sorry. <laughs> Mom brain, you know, October. And then, but the net worth might be assessed in between those quarters. So sometimes okay. it creates just a little bit of an overlap depending on when it is that the new fee might start a following quarter after that. And then also when people join my practice, they pay the first quarter up front. So it doesn't matter when they join. Let's say they join in November, even though technically the first quarter would be a shortened quarter, they still pay the full quarter up front. We actually discount the or rebate the feedback on the second quarter that they would pay. So they would they pay when they first come in and then they pay six months later the smaller portion of the fee to make up for that smaller period of time that they were in. That way they can be on the an annual schedule with everybody else. Otherwise, it honestly would be... I think a nightmare. <laughs> and so rather than trying to prorate the first quarter's fee in, in real time, and then you're like, oh, shoot, it took them an extra week to do the paperwork, so I got to adjust it by another week's worth. You just bill the first quarter up front, and then the following quarter do the true up of, hey, you were actually 72 days into the quarter, so next quarter we're only going to bill you for the last 18 days. Yep, exactly. And get them back into the sink. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I found doing it the other way, it, for exactly your reason, maybe they didn't sign the contract on the exact on the date or whatever that we originally thought that they were, and then the fee's not right, and then I'm adding it the next night. It's just it was a headache. Interesting. And do you get anyone that balks at like? I mean, you're not talking about writing a check for three thousand dollars plus up up front first quarter's fee out of the gate. Do you do you get any pushback or concerns from clients about why why do I have to do that? You have so much up front. Generally, no. No, I haven't. I had one client where it just didn't make sense because like, she had gotten money from a settlement, so she didn't actually have money to pay her first quarter's fee, so we just charged her like we normally would. But with the exception of that, like, and I'm also like, I'm not, again, I'm not here to like make a client's experience terrible. So if it really doesn't make sense for them to pay the upfront quarter fee, like we don't do it. I do like to do that though, because it kind of gets the fire going. Like it, it, once you pay, you're like, oh, I've paid. I need to start like sending my stuff. Otherwise, what I found without doing that is that you might sign up a client, let's say, I don't know, in, in March, but they don't send anything until October. So, so talk to us a little bit more then about what happens when a when a client comes on board like what are what are you doing for a minimum fee of twelve thousand dollars a year 
what it, what does that process actually look like for them? Yeah. So I recently got my registered life planning designation. So the process has changed for sure for new clients coming in. They all go through the kinder process now. So the first call, though, is a 30-minute call with my employee, who's a financial planning associate, and he basically screens all the prospects now. So when somebody comes in, they talk to him first for a half hour. If he thinks that they'd be a good fit for the practice, then they talk to me for either an hour and a half or two hours, depending if it's a single person or a couple. And they go through the exploration process like George Kinder intended them to, where it's really open-ended. I barely talk. (laughs) It's a lot of asking anything else, anything else, you know, really just letting them focus on what they want to get addressed and what's really important to them and giving them enough time and space to really come up with all of the things. And then after that, they get Kinder Street questions to answer at home. And in the second meeting, which is vision, we read them together and then I present them with a vision. And that is usually, it's, so, it's such a magical meeting. Honestly, I love that meeting so much. And it's, so, it's funny because I was so nervous about doing the first couple just because like I hadn't really done it before. But now it's like, it's my favorite thing is delivering the vision just because you can see it on the client's face. Like you're just telling them exactly what they told you just in a more descriptive way. And it really gets them excited about what it is that they want to do. So, so help me understand just the, the flow here, like you're, you're asking all these questions of in the first meeting of just, you know, what do you want and what are you trying to accomplish? I guess just more about them, anything else, anything else you're giving them kinders three questions as homework. So then they, they send that homework back before the next meeting or they, they bring that homework with them to the next meeting? Yeah. So there's a little portal that George Kendra offers that we use. It's called Life Planning for You. And they literally fill it in in the portal and you can assign the different exercises in there. And I like that also because I can see it and then I can review it before a meeting. I've had it be though where a client just, they didn't do it. And then we did it live. So I don't like to like shame a client if they don't <laughs> they don't do their homework, you know. So I think it's a more powerful experience if clients are willing to do it on their own because like when you're sitting there with your thoughts and you're actually writing it down, you generally you get more out of somebody than if they're just sitting there kind of telling you off the top of their head, you know, oh, this is what I would do if I had all the money in the world. Oh, this is what I would do if I knew I was sick. Oh, this is what I would know what I would do if I had one day left, you know, um, <laughs> or what I'd miss out on. It's a yeah. little less powerful than when like they read the question and they're like, oh, what would that be like for me? Hmm. So in some regards, if they don't do it, they don't get the full experience, but it's still like we could still do it for sure. And yeah, that is actually something that I had talked to Louis Volbright about because he he was the, my mentor in the program. And like I had canceled a meeting with one of my clients because she didn't do her homework. And he was like, you know, <laughs> you don't need to like make it such a big deal. If they don't do it, like, you know, be, be empathetic. They probably had a reason why they didn't do it. And I'm like, oh, right, of course, empathy. That's what we learned. It's like, we're supposed to be empathetic when somebody can't do their homework. Ah, like, it's not about me. It's about them. And that's kind of the biggest thing I think I've, the biggest takeaway I've had from Kinder in general is like, it's never about me. It's always about the client. And I think that my practice has always been about that, but it took it to a new level of like, this is really about the client. And everything, like we have to really be empathetic with, they have busy lives, like just like I do, you know, they have other things that they want to do besides financial planning with me. Um, (laughs) You know, they don't necessarily want to gather their documents and do all these things that are really kind of a heartache and uncomfortable and, you know, make them have negative feelings about the things that they were previously doing with their finances. So yeah, I think I sort of took your question off the rails, but 
No, no, I, I think it's I think it's good. Like I, I think it's powerful just reflecting, you know, be careful when we get caught up sometimes in the in the homework of you know, ask clients to gather this information, bring it in. They don't bring it in. So, you know, I, I tell them we're not doing the meeting because, hey, the meeting's not going to be productive because you didn't give me the data that you need without, I think, as you put it well, reflecting. Like, they did hire you. They were going to go with this somewhere. If they didn't do the homework, like maybe there's something else going on that actually would be good to talk about. Like, totally. Why? Also- <laughs> like, what's, what's, what's going on? You know, I, I, I still remember an early, very early client situation that I, that I'd had with someone like, you know, was supposed to be doing planning work for them. You know, didn't send in the the data gathering material they're supposed to send, said they were going to, and didn't, said they were going to, and didn't, said they were going to, and didn't, and dragged out for like two plus months, finally ended out getting them on a phone call, just trying to find out like what's going on. And, and it turned out she was almost in tears because they were so not organized in their financial life, which was part of why they needed a financial advisor. She was so not organized in her financial life, like she couldn't find the information. She just literally had no idea where her own stuff was, where her own money was. And the fact that we kept asking her made her feel humiliated. Mm. Yeah. Because like apparently everybody else just fills out this form, but I don't know where my stuff is. So apparently I'm horribly bad at this stuff and and probably shouldn't even work with an advisor and should just go hide in my hidey hole of shame. And and so she she didn't want to she didn't want to talk to us interact with us at that point because she was so embarrassed that she was financially disorganized when the whole point of the process was to help her get more organized. But we got so stuck on the you got to fill out the form and get the form back to us so we can get the numbers in the planning software and do this thing that you know we we sort of missed like Hey, maybe if the client seems to be dragging their feet after they said they wanted to work with us, like maybe something else is going on and that might even actually be the more important conversation. It it made me way more understanding for all the different reasons that clients don't don't do the homework and get us their information and often that's actually where the the real planning conversation is, the first planning conversation is. Totally. I've also noticed, I mean, I have clients, they're super busy, right? Like I basically, I feel like if you looked at my practice, it looks a lot like me. They're like people with families and they've got businesses and they're running around like crazy, you know, (laughs) they're trying to get it all done while still having balance and also wanting to have a good financial life, right? So there are some clients that I just know they never, they're never going to be prepared for a meeting. Like we're never going to get stuff in advance for them. So the meeting is about getting the information, it's like a good time for them to just set aside. And then, you know what? So we get so we get them a plan later on, you know, like it's <laughs> so I'm not delivering it in the meeting. I'm delivering it by email and then asking them if they want to discuss it on a, you know, just a quick phone call because they don't have time to do another meeting. And I think that that's kind of the beautiful thing about having 25 clients is like, I know who those people are and, <laughs> and I know how to deal with them. Right. <laughs> yep. um, and so it's just. And also, like, I can I can take that time because it's like, okay, so fine. So I don't do prep work before the meeting, but I have I know I have more stuff to do after the meeting, and that's just the way it is. And we have like that for really a lot of clients because they don't always send us in advance what it is that they want to talk about at that meeting. We always ask, you know, if there's anything on your mind that you want to add to this list, please do. And sometimes they don't send it in advance. Sometimes they just come with it. And that's okay, like, because we haven't, you know, I have plenty of time to do, to do that stuff for them. And I think that that's kind of, that's really the nice thing and definitely a huge value add because if you have so many clients, you just can't do that. If they don't come with the stuff that you're prepared, you know, to do in that meeting, like that's all the time they get. And that's kind of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's the distinction, right? If you're if you're trying to get to your three hundred thousand of revenue by doing two hundred clients and fifteen hundred dollars a plan, the trains have to run on time. Like everything <laughs> has to run like a well-oiled machine because you don't have a lot of room for additional time and things to extend out when you're trying to drive the same revenue from two from twenty five clients doing twelve thousand dollars each. And, you know, now, now you can make the math work spending 20 hours per client, not trying to figure out how to cram it down to five hours per client. All of a sudden, there's a whole lot more flexibility to say, hey, if this is where the client needs to go and what they need to do that works for them, you know what, we can totally make that work. You know, if, if they can't find the time to gather the information, so we're going to make our meeting the meeting where we actually get the information. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like that's a good outcome. The client will exit the meeting feeling more organized they were than they came in. So it's positive. Definitely. Yeah. And then also, cause like I do, I have an employee who helps and who comes on in all the meetings and everything now and clients are starting to get to know him, but they don't, they don't always copy him or include him on the loop and stuff. So like it's, but it's fine, right? Because it's, I have 25 clients. So if somebody sends me something, they don't include Mark. Like I just send it to Mark. I don't like, you know, chastise them for <laughs> not having included him. You know, it's like it, there are certain things that are, it makes everybody's life easier and it makes it a more pleasant experience when you're able to just spend the time even behind the scenes, even if a client doesn't know that you're doing it. So now talk to us a little bit more about this vision meeting, at least for, <laughs> for the subject of clients who do a reasonable job on their homework and, and go through the life planning for you process and get you the stuff in advance. So, so what exactly are you building up to and delivering at this second meeting? Yeah, so I actually read their three questions back to them. And they usually, when you read a client's words back to them, they reflect on those words. So they'll add things, which is really nice. So maybe they only put like, I don't know, 10 sentences on the page. But if you stop after every single sentence, they'll add something a little bit here, a little bit there. And the next thing you know, you have the whole picture of what's going on for each of the questions for them. And then after that, I have a really good idea of like, okay, here's the vision that I want to present to you. The thing that's nice about the three questions is that it takes everything from exploration, like all of the things that they listed that were important to them. And it kind of like it, it creates a funnel really for the client in and of itself where the client really starts to prioritize, okay, yeah, maybe like, you know, gardening is really important to me, but like actually spending more time with my children is more important than me being out of my garden by myself. So <laughs> just an example, I don't know, maybe for somebody else, right. it would be vice versa, right? But that funnel kind of happens when they when they go through the three questions, because the first one kind of lets them dream a little bit more and cast the net even more widely because they have all the money in the world. But then when you start to constrain down the time, once time is like the fact, the limiting factor, all of a sudden, the things that are really important to you start to really come out. And when I did these questions myself, I noticed that for sure. And I even had a, a conversation with my husband when I got home from the training and, and he read my questions and he was like, well, in question number two, where you only have, you know, five to 10 years left to live, like you put spending more time with the kids, like you didn't really put anything about your business in here. <laughs> And I was like, huh, yeah, you're right. And <laughs> he's like, well, you know, the kids, like, they're going to grow up. Like, you really only do have five to 10 years of them, like, whether you die or not, you know, like, of, yeah. of like this age. And when he said that, I was like, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, 
you're so right. Yeah. Like you only have a limited amount of time with your kids at the age that they're at. Obviously, you know, we all hope to live a really long life and that our kids do too. And that we know them for 60 plus years, but you don't get to know them. Like you want to make sure that you spend the time knowing them at every stage in their life. So that was kind of, that's like the nice thing about constraining down time. And I've seen that over and over again with clients when they go through this question is like, once time is a limiting factor, the the thing that's most important always comes out. And then that's the thing that we that I present to them in the vision, because that's the thing that they want to be working towards rather than all that other stuff that kind of gets in the way. And so the idea is you're, you're trying to put weave together their stuff into a vision of what you think they want to work towards that, hey, and if I've got this right, then we will work towards that together. Is that is that a a good way to frame it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've like, I'm just, I don't know, let's say like traveling to the top of Machu Picchu and then also, you know, playing the guitar up there and learning the guitar, even maybe somebody doesn't know how to play is like, that's their vision, their dream. So we come up with a way to like give that to them basically in the next year to 18 months. And then when you know that that's something that's on your horizon of, okay, like I want to learn the guitar and I want to be playing in on top of Machu Picchu in (laughs) 12 to 18 months. Or bring it together. We can... Yeah. Carry the guitar to the top of Machu Picchu and and learn up there, right? We're up there, absolutely. Exactly. Like then you know, okay, this is what I have to work towards. And if you present it in a way where the client can really even see themselves up on that mountain with the mist and the clouds and maybe the beautiful blue sky, and they're looking out there and they're holding their guitar, right? And you maybe even include a smell in there. Now they're there, and now they're excited, and now it's something that they really want to work towards. And I found that like if you can boil that down into something where you, you present that in 20 to 30 seconds, then it's even better, right? Because we have short attention spans and we don't want to listen to somebody like telling us some long drawn out story about something that may or may not happen to us in, in a year. So <laughs> it's like, it's real, but, but then the client is seeing it and they're kind of even living it in that moment. And then they get the energy from that of like, Oh, I want that. Okay. What do I need to do to get that? So after that meeting, it's always, I always say, you know, you got to live in that moment, like really imagine yourself being there. Don't think about all the stuff that's going to get in the way. We're going to address that at the next meeting, but really just imagine what it would be like for you to live like that for, for the next two weeks or until we meet again. And I've noticed it's sometimes hard for clients to do that, but if they, if they really want it, they will think about that vision, like basically every day (laughs) until they meet with you again. So it struck me that as you were talking about this and setting this vision, I, I feel like for a lot of us, I don't know, the traditional way that the advisory industry does this, usually this vision essentially culminates in some form of retirement and walks on the beach and Adirondack chairs and lighthouses are all the different ways that we that we visualize retirement and the and these long-term goals. And I, I'm just struck, like you just sort of mentioned it in there. Like, and this is something we're trying to give them in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. So, <laughs> you're you're setting a very different scope around goals than I think what a lot of us tend to think about when we're setting goals. So can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, well, I think the best way to to think about it is like how easy is it for somebody to be excited about something that's going to happen to them in 30 years versus how easy is it for somebody to get excited about something that they could have in 12 months or even nine, like 3 months, right? We, we have trouble delaying gratification, right, as, as a human race. I right. think it's, it's kind of just part of our evolutionary biology that we want, like, we need food and we need shelter and we need all these things kind of more immediately. And immediate gratification is really a lot more exciting and important to us than delayed gratification. So the way that you get a client to work towards that 30-year plan is actually by helping them get to 
some part of that plan sooner. Because the more that they're able to hit goals sooner, the easier it's going to be for them to get that ball rolling down the hill. It's like the opposite of Sisyphus, I guess, <laughs> instead of pushing that boulder right. up the hill that's super heavy. Like sometimes getting that ball just going down the hill because it's so heavy is so hard and getting it where we want it to go. And I feel like the the importance of the setting short-term goals is actually the only way to motivate behavior because the more we focus on super long-term esoteric goals that are out there that we may or may not meet, the less our brains are actually just able to even understand how we're supposed to get there. Interesting. So I know someone that talked about this as the, uh, the small wins approach to, to financial planning. Sort of same framework, like going after these big giant long-term goals like retirement just gets so long-term and distant and overwhelming that it, it can actually become demotivating because it's just such a huge boulder to to lift up such a huge hill. And their whole philosophy was, I just want to string together a constant, a constant list of small wins that we're making that all keep moving towards whatever that that long-term big goal thing is. But we don't even really focus on the big goal. We we focus on the small wins because the the small ones feel good, and when they feel good, you you want another one. If you keep racking them up, you you will move quite far. Totally that, and like if you're working with a financial planner, like they're going to set like I said, pretty stringent kind of guidelines. I mean, obviously the client can decide whether or not they want to follow it, but there are certain financial planning principles that when they come in, like we talk about, you know, hey, you got to save at least twenty percent of your pre tax income. And we'll help you decide where that money goes. So, and it's just kind of getting a client to a place where like, hey, I'm spending less than I'm making. I'm saving. I'm doing all the things that I need to do, right? So like us planning for something happening in, you know, six to 18 months just helps them do it more, right? It just helps them maybe use the money that they were going to, that they were setting aside now in the way that they, that really is meaningful to them so that the other money that they're not using that's going to grow and do all the things that it's supposed to do will be there for them when they retire. And sometimes just giving somebody the thing that they want now actually really helps them do the other stuff that they're supposed to do, quote unquote, like from a financial planning perspective. Because I was going to say, do you do you now get problems or like you're <laughs> – you're spending so much time trying to help people figure out how to take like business sabbaticals to go to Machu Picchu that we never actually get back to the whole like, oh, you do actually have to save for some of those long-term goals as well. Because if you keep blowing your savings on big trips every 12 to 18 months, we're, we're, we're not going to get there. Yeah, definitely. So I think the the other part of the process is like, okay, we talk about obstacles, which is the next meeting. That's another hour and a half to two hour long meeting. And we kind of knock out all the things that are getting in their way of having what they want. Uh, but after that, it's kind of more traditional financial planning, <laughs> where we weave that stuff back in because we know what's really important to them. But we also like, not that I, I mean, it's, it's de-emphasized because it's not as important to them, but we're still planning for it. And it's still like, really what people in they expect when they come to a financial planner is, hey, hey, talk about like how much I'm saving for retirement and whether or not I'm putting enough away for my kid's school and whether or not I'm saving enough in general and how maybe the mechanics of my business are working so that I am putting enough money aside because cash flows are kind of lumpy instead of smooth like they would be if I were a W-2, like things like that. Like all the regular financial planning stuff does happen. It just doesn't happen until meeting four. And, and so where is the transition in this from prospect to clients because you had said like the first meeting is just like it's a screening call your associates doing it just to try to figure out if they even may be a good fit then the first meeting you're asking lots of questions and presumably you're also just trying to suss out fit so mm -hmm. at, at at what point do we get to the oh and by the way here's what i charge and do you want to work with me and engage me like when when are when is that 
part come and we transition from a prospecting process to a client process? Yeah. So my associate always lays out fees in the 30 minute call. So if somebody is already like, no, in that call, then obviously they're not going to be a good fit. It kind of doesn't matter what we're going to do in the next one. The first call is designed to be really open-ended as well. Like it may not, it's not me doing it, but Mark is really trained on how to just kind of sit there and listen and see what a client wants. And and then also always sends a really nice recap email of like, hey, these are the things that are important to you. These are the ways that we can help on those things. You know, this is our fee structure. Let us know. And if a client says yes to that, then they schedule with me. At that point, we have the two hour long meeting or hour and a half long if they're just a single person. And I then also decide whether or not I want to work with them. And usually they're doing the same thing too, because I, I am the lead planner, right? So they need to know, like, they need to know whether or not they want to work with me. I need to know whether or not I want to work with them. And by the end of that meeting, we have usually 15 minutes set aside to just, you know, talk about whether or not we're a good fit, how, what next steps would be. If they want to work with us, then we have them sign the contract and we send over the homework, inspirational work. And it really pretty much goes from there. And we, I don't really start any work until a client signs a contract and pays. <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's, okay, if you want to work together, great, but you, you have to do the things that we require in order to get work started. So I'm struck though that you have your, your associate is laying out the fees in the initial screening call. Like, do you get any worry of just you know, $12,000 is a pretty sizable number that you, if you don't get to explain and talk through that fee with them, like some people are just going to balk because Mark's doing a screening call. He's not necessarily the firm's lead salesperson to develop new business and that you're going to lose some people because you didn't have an opportunity to discuss fees and talk about the value on the spot. Yeah. So I definitely, I'm sure I lose people. I, I guess there's not really a better way of saying this. I don't really care. <laughs> Whether or not I lose people, right? Like if somebody wants to work with me, it's usually because they either were referred in by a current client who said raving things about us and that they want to work there. So like they kind of already know maybe what the fee structure is. They've probably already been to the website that has it on there. We're pretty open about it. So like a client can balk, you know, if they, if they want to balk, then they're welcome to balk. And we normally, I'll just give them referrals to other people. There are a lot of good planners out there who are charging less than me. And, and I know that, and I'm super happy to refer that said, though, like Mark is really good at what he does and he's really personable and he's really empathetic. And so I am confident that in that half hour call, if they like Mark then and Mark likes them, that they're probably a good fit. And the people that he's been able to pass through have been really good fits for the practice. And the reason why he takes the first call is because my calendar is just too constrained. A prospect will, if like when I used to have my calendar up there, would look at the calendar and there'd literally be like, there's Thursday at 1.30 and then there's two Thursdays from now at 2.30 and 3.30, <laughs> right. you know, and it was just getting to the point where like we couldn't even schedule people because like I keep my calendar so tight. I block off my time of when I'm doing things, when I'm doing client work, when I'm with my son, my calendar, if you looked at it, like my, both my VA and, and Mark think that my calendar is crazy. And it also has stuff on there that my husband's doing because like we trade off time that we are with my son and when the nanny's here and when she's not here, like <laughs> it's crazy on there, you know? So like for, for a prospect who is like excited and wants to do financial planning and then they see that the next appointment's, you know, three months out, like it's not really going to work either. So that's why Mark takes the initial call. And generally people do ask about fees in that call. So if they don't ask about them, I imagine he doesn't mention them, but if they like, if they're going to ask about them, we're not going to, we're not going to not tell them. So, so this planning process, then the Mark does the screening call, your first three meetings are sort of this 
discovery vision talking about obstacles and they they come on board through that if they're enjoying the process and want to work with you to move towards that vision that that you've set out you said then after after the third meeting it goes into sort of quote more traditional financial planning so what what is what does the planning process look like for you at that point yeah so at that point we address top concerns first so right like it might not be really exciting or even important to a client to address estate planning but we know we have to address it so maybe we don't do that in the first meeting maybe we do that in the second or third meeting of financial planning so like after those first three meetings are done then we start with the financial planning meetings usually a client has another two to three, sometimes four meetings with us in the first year. So the first year is really meeting heavy. And it's something that that I'm really upfront with a a client about of like, hey, like we're going to spend a lot of time together this first year and then it'll taper off. But the reason why is because we want to really get your plan right because we want to do this with you for a long time and we don't want to be making changes every year because we didn't get it right in the first year. And so that's that's kind of how it works. So the, the first meeting is always like what's super important to them. The second and third meeting is usually what's more important from a financial planning perspective in general <laughs> and also still tying up loose loose ends about what's important to them. And yeah, so just making sure that the regular stuff is taken care of, of like, okay, what does retirement look like? What does insurance look like? What does estate planning look like for our client? Like, do they have all the stuff that they need in place? Are they doing, are they taking measures to make sure that they're doing the things that they need to be doing? Do we need to have discussions about what's important? Do we need to have a budgeting call because they're really not saving enough? And these are all things that are, they're really client dependent, right? It's hard for me to tell you exactly what goes on in these meetings without having a specific client to model it off of. But again, kind of like the nice thing of having 25 clients is like, there isn't really a specific process. Like we just know that we're going to go through these, you know, three to four meetings and we're going to do what needs to get done for the client. I like the, the, the framing though of the first meeting diving deeper into planning is what's important to them. The second meeting can be what's important to financial planning. Like, hey, I know that other thing's important to you, but like, you really got to pay attention to this thing over here. Like, you have young children <laughs> and no wills and no life insurance. Like, we need yeah. to fix this in the next meeting. But, but if it's not your concern, you're just not going to really likely tackle it with energy in the first meeting. So we're still going to start with your thing first, but, but we are going to get to the other important things a fast second. Yeah. And I do that exactly for the reason that you said. If you come out the gate after doing three meetings that are kinder type meetings, and then you're like, hey, by the way, none of that stuff that you just told me over the last six hours was all that important. You need to get your life insurance in place. A client is like, what the heck kind of bait and switch just happened to me? (laughs) You know, (laughs) like you just told me that everything was going to be focused on me. And now you're like, no, like I need to go get disability insurance. Right. So And also like insurance is never like for the most part, unless I've never had a client come through unless they're kind of like super cautious and risk adverse, like wanting that insurance is the most important part of their plan, right? Usually people don't really want to think about that thing. So even though it is urgent and something that needs to be addressed earlier on, like they're already walking around without a will and life insurance. You know, it's like, (laughs) is another month going to kill them? Like maybe I guess, right? Like if they stepped in front of a bus, it would be a problem. But having said that, like, you know, like most of my clients are young. It's okay. Like they're, you know, we tell them, you know, don't text while you're walking across the street and pay attention while you're driving and we'll get to it when we get to it. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so as you go through this, this part of the planning process, are you in, I guess I call it like traditional financial planning software as well? Or are you still taking in data and doing the financial projections and printing out and walking through plans as well? Or is this still more of the, the kinder conversational driven 
approach? It's very conversationally driven. I do use financial planning software. I mostly, we mostly use all of our tools behind the scenes. I give people access to eMoney, which is the financial planning software that we use just because people like it. They like to be able to log in and see all their accounts in one place. It's also the place that we assess net worth every year. So they need to know how to use it and how to update their connections. That way on the anniversary date, we're able to actually have a good picture of what net worth is. But with the exception of that, like there's no meeting where I'm like any money, you know, doing things. E-money is really there from a financial planning perspective as a number check. I use it and then I'm like, that number doesn't seem right. And then I do it in a spreadsheet and then, <laughs> and then I cross-reference. There's a lot of that stuff going on behind the scenes. I have a lot of in-house planning, like just financial spreadsheets that we use as templates that we cross-check against e-money. It's kind of one of those things where if you put the wrong inputs in, you get the wrong inputs out. Right. And if you don't know what's going on, I find it really difficult to present a plan to a client when I don't even understand the numbers. So a lot of that is also just making sure that I know exactly what's going on so that when I'm really like I'm giving a number to a client in confidence. So especially for like life insurance numbers, I mean, obviously you don't have to get it to the penny like everything else in financial planning, but you do need to get it pretty right, right? <laughs> and the numbers need to make sense. And there are some clients who are really, like I have a few clients who are really into the math and we show it to them. And you don't, I don't do that in a financial planning software setting because like they're not going to be able to see what's going on. I can barely see what's going on behind the scenes in the financial planning software. So like we do create spreadsheets for clients who want to see the numbers, how we run the numbers. And so once you get through the first year process and you're in an, an ongoing process, what does ongoing financial planning look like for clients at now $12,000 plus per year? Yeah. So at this point, all of my clients are assets under management clients. Like I do manage assets for them. So there's definitely ongoing investment management that occurs for all of my clients. There is also just regular check-ins on other things. So I have certain clients who they're my business owners and they have cash flow related issues all of the time. We're always working on making sure that we're saving the appropriate amount when like the big lump of cash comes in, you know, <laughs> and paying taxes and doing all the other things. So there's certain clients that there's intense planning needs throughout the year. And then there are other clients where it's, you know, it's kind of light and easy, but we're still there to check in and tell them what's going on with their investments and tell them what's going on with their plan and why they're on track. And then also we do kinder type meetings basically every 18 months or so. So a client will go through that process again. That way we can set a new goal of something that's going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months. And, and the kinder type meetings is, is going back to the three questions and asking them again and just saying, hey, let's, let's reflect on these answers once more and see if they're the same. Yeah, exactly. Because they, they usually aren't, right? If you think about how like your own life, right? Or if I think about my life, I am pregnant with a baby girl now, like she's due in January. So that's really top of mind for me. So maybe when I'm doing the questions today, I'm going to write a lot about that. But once she's born, right, if I redid those questions, they're going to look a little bit different. Yeah, like the principles of them, right? Like the things that are super important that are like in deeply ingrained in my life that are my family, like that's not going to change. But the way I answer the questions still will. And there's still going to be different things that I want to work towards because I'm a human being and we change over time. So it's the same thing with our clients. Like I think sometimes we forget that we were like, okay, when they come in, like they tell us our hope, their hopes and goals and dreams. And now we know them. <laughs> we never go back and reassess to see right. whether or not like those hopes and goals and dreams have changed. And usually they have, especially if they're shorter term in nature, because for instance, I had a client who came in four years ago and the, the main focus was on catching up on taxes because they were always behind. And we caught up on taxes. We did that within two and a half years. So 
like that's not going to be a goal of theirs anymore. So it doesn't make sense to be focused on that anymore. It makes sense now to go back and revisit and say, okay, hey, what do you want to work on now? And they came up with very different things. Believe me, (laughs) they didn't want to focus on taxes anymore. Who does? And and for those who aren't familiar, like what what are the Kinder three questions? Like I realize we're talking about them a lot, but not everyone is actually familiar with them. If if folks want the full deep dive on George Kinder, you can go back. We had him on the podcast a few years ago. So kitsis.com slash 15 for episode 15. But can you give us just a, a recap of like what what are the three questions that we keep talking about? Yeah, definitely. So the first question is, if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? Who would you be? How would your life be different? And the last part of it being kind of the important part of like, how would your life be different? What would change because you had all this money? That's essentially kind of the financial freedom question. Like if you had financial freedom and you were no longer constrained to the, the things you do because of the money you have to earn, like what, what would that life look like? Exactly. Yeah. And then I've had clients be like, well, how much money do I have? I'm like, you have infinite money. And one, one guy was like, well, like I could buy a baseball team kind of money. I'm like, sure. Like you can dream as big as you want. Right. The whole point of that question actually is to dream as big as you want and to get excited about all the things that maybe you could have if you had all the money in the world. Yeah. I just, if you think about that with, I don't know, you know, a client you're seeing across from and they're an architect and working up the firm and trying to make partner. And we're like, we're having all these conversations about moving up and just, you know, the fact that they would ask like, wait, is this buy a baseball team kind of money? It's like, <laughs> um, I just learned something really interesting about where your goals and priorities and excitement are <laughs> like, that's a, that's a, that's a big deal discovery to even to have that as the question, even if that doesn't become their goal, right? I'm just thinking through. Yeah, totally. That's a really interesting glimmer of perspective about someone because not everybody would say that or come up with that. Oh, definitely not. Like that would never be on my list, but it was really important to him. So then it was like, okay, how do we get you to more games? How do we get you more involved? Like, yeah, you don't have the money to go buy a baseball team, but it doesn't mean we can't like experience the feeling of being part of something, right? Which is, you know, being, being part of the sport, which is so important to him. And then it came out that he played in high school and that, you know, he wanted to play in college, but he wasn't good enough. And, you know, all the stuff that comes out when, when the client says something just kind of off the cuff of, can I buy a baseball team? Like you would never think that that was, that had so much meaning and feeling behind it, but it, but these things do. And I think that's kind of the number one thing I've learned as a planner is like everything a client says is important to them. Pretty much everything, like, especially in the meetings with, with a financial planner, because they don't come to waste their time with you. And something so small as even the client asking about me, like I've noticed there are certain clients who ask a lot of questions about me and it's not because like, they're not just doing it to be nice. It's actually like kind of part of them and it's come out in the way that they express their goals and needs. It's like they they care so much about what other people are doing and, and how other people are living and what kind of, you know, how they can contribute to that, that that's actually part of their plan. So I feel like sometimes we have to be just a lot more, up on, you know, what a client is saying and like really take everything that they're saying seriously and evaluating it as like, oh, like this is actually who they are. They're not just, you know, being nice to you. <laughs> so, right. So, so question number one is sort of this financial freedom question. Then what's, what's the second question? Yeah. The second question is you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you bad news and says that you have five to 10 years left to live and you won't feel any pain during this time, but you also won't know the moment of your passing. And then the question asks you basically, what will you, what will change about your life? If you know, you only have five to 10 years left, 
what would like, how would you live then? And right. this question is obviously way more serious than the financial uh, freedom type question. Like you go from exciting, happy, throwing money everywhere to, oh, like, okay, this got serious. And then the question I always get after that is, well, do I have like the old money from the first question or <laughs> do I have my money right now? And I'm like, no. <laughs> are these mutually exclusive or are we going sequentially? Yeah, here? exactly. I'm like, no, you have the money you have right now. Like you have your, your it's, you know, it's you in your current financial picture. You go to the doctor and this is the news that you get. So yeah, it, it really like it, it kind of really puts into perspective. Okay. Like these are, this is what I've done so far. This is how much I've accumulated. Okay. Now what do I want to do if I know I only have five to 10 years left? Because now just now you really start getting to what's actually important in your life. Right. Yeah. I imagine this is, this is where you get a lot of the, Oh, well, I would really want to spend more time with my kids because right now I work 70 hours a week slaving away in my in my company and like I'm not doing that corporate job if I've only got five to 10 years. Like I'm, I'm focusing on my kids or my family or my community or something else. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And it also, I think for, for some people, it almost gives them permission to free up their calendar because like it, it is possible, right, that any one of us could only have five to 10 years left to live, right? We don't know. We don't know when we're going to pass away. It doesn't mean that we can have like this kind of YOLO attitude where we throw all caution to the wind, but it does mean that we should always be prioritizing the things that are important. Right. And then what's the third question? So the third question is you go back to the same doctor and they give you the worst news. And he says that you have one day left to live. And the question is not about what you would do in that day. The question is, what did you miss? Who did you not get to be? What do you regret? And that question, that question obviously is the heaviest. And usually what I've seen is that whatever was in question two is really in question three. <laughs> right. It starts, it starts getting amplified because now we quickly get to, I just started talking in question two about the things that are really, really important to me that I may be partially ignoring and not really doing to the extent that I want to do now. And now all of a sudden, I just realized that the opportunity slipped away because I have one day to live. And so I go really quickly to my regrets of the stuff in number two that I didn't get to do. Exactly. Yeah. And usually in question three, people mostly, they prioritize three things that are really important to them. And those are the three things that end up in their vision. So, I mean, you could, if like, I guess you could just do question three and do a vision off of it. I kind of like to have it all because in question one, like there's fun things in there that you can sprinkle into a vision. Yeah. So it's not so heavy. And so that a client is really excited about it. Cause there are actually a lot of things that do come out in question one that are important. They're just not like if the world was ending and my life was over something I would focus on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not something that they want to do. And so likewise, I feel like it, it gets clearer about why you update these every 18 months just a year and a half goes by and you know the priorities start to change like yeah I, totally. i've discovered a new hobby and it starts showing up in goal number one and you know there's a a change in family i guess that could be a birth or a death and like suddenly some of the priorities for number two look different if only because just life has moved and looks a little bit different now yeah, I mean, even think about just like the regular financial planning events that happen in people's lives. Like a couple gets, they get engaged, they get married, they start a family, maybe they have multiple kids, right? All of this stuff happens, you know, <laughs> every 18 months or so, something new is coming in there. Yeah. Well, I guess particularly because as you said, like your median client age is 41. I think it would be one thing to be doing this with 
68 year old retirees where I don't know if life looks all that different at age 68 and 70 and 72 and 74, sort of maybe like a health event rolls through. We're sort of in our stable retirement and not as much as changing. But when you're in your 30s and 40s, like life comes at you real fast. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I've also found that it's really powerful, though, for people who are about to retire and then you do it again after they're retired because like yeah. it's a huge change. And the things that they wanted for their retirement are they're usually done now that they're retired and they're looking at other things. So a lot of times like the question is focused on what they maybe would be doing in retirement, but the things that are really important are kind of how they retire rather than like the things that they'll be doing after they retire. So now talk to us a little bit about this whole other side of the business thing you've got with money owners and a podcast and a book that's coming. And you said you're doing coaching, which is a whole different type of engagement and, and pricing structure and scope and the rest. So so help us understand more about what's going on at the other end of the barbell. Yeah, definitely. So Money Owners Podcast was always intended to come out every two weeks. And then like this year happened for me. <laughs> and then there was a pandemic. Yeah, then there was a pandemic. We moved. So we moved from New York to Texas in January, then a pandemic hit, then I got pregnant. Then I was like in the midst of writing my book, like furiously writing my book over the summer while I was like basically like super nauseous and, you know, vomiting every day. <laughs> so that was fun. And so every time I would like start my podcast, of like, I know this is late. I'm so sorry. Thank you for keep listening, like to keep listening to this. I really appreciate all the listeners out there. You know, they're going to come out, I promise. But yeah, the intention there was always to just put out good financial advice for free to people who wanted it and who were willing to listen to me talk for a half hour, which I know sometimes could be hard. <laughs> and it's also kind of nice for me, I think, to collect my thoughts and be uninterrupted for, for 30 minutes on a financial planning topic. Craig, I don't really get that with a client. I never talk at a client for 30 minutes. That would be like the worst possible client service ever. <laughs> so it's usually the client that we let talk for 30 minutes, right? Not the other way right. around. And like when we're talking about financial planning concepts, we are boiling them down in a way that the client that I'm facing can understand, not just like some sort of general like here, you know, trying to make it a little more exciting and went like long winded for the purposes of entertainment, really. So that's actually just been nice on a number of levels. Also, like it's helped me brush up on certain topics that maybe I haven't looked at in a while. Like I did an employee stock option episode and like that was fun to like look up all the little rules. Same thing with the book. So the book is also part of Money Owners and will be released on that side rather than through my financial planning practice just for a multitude of compliance related things. Um, <laughs> But um, my book that's coming out, well, I think by the time this is published, it'll be out. But October 19th, it's called The Personal Finance Quick Start Guide. And it's basically, it's a like start to finish. I think something that uh, if somebody read it, they actually could create their own financial plan. It combines the behavioral side of finance with the with personal financial planning principles. And that's what the podcast has always been about, too. It's not just the numbers. It's also about the human elements of all of this that get in the way of us, like just being kind of robots who do things based off of a spreadsheet, which none of us ever do. So the fact that like there are so many personal finance books out there that focus mostly on that, I felt like were lacking in kind of the human side of it. And really, I guess now having been through the kinder training got kind of definitely got a kinder tilt on it. So right. <laughs> probably not what the publisher was originally looking for, but the end product is definitely something that we are all excited about. And then talk to us about this coaching direction as well. 
Yeah. So when Money Owners originally started, the coaching program was intended actually to be a group coaching program. So for the same reasons that a client could maybe pay, you know, 100 or 200 bucks a month for a short term coaching engagement and that they would do it with hopefully five to 10 other people. And then it would be worth my time because I would be spending maybe an hour or two per week with people helping them with their finances and they can learn from each other. That was the original goal of the program. And it was also to get people who were similar together. So the focus was actually going to be on female business owners when I first opened. And then I went through the kinder training and I was like, nah, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> now I'm just going to what offer. Happened? Yeah. What happened to it? <laughs> Does George not like group coaching? Like, no, what it was really more me. I was like, you know, I just like this kinder stuff so much. So so I'm just going to offer the first three meetings to people in a coaching engagement and they can go through exploration, vision and obstacles like my clients do. And they can pay for just that. And if they need a little financial help after that, we'll do it on it. We'll work something out on an hourly basis that makes sense for them. And yeah, so now that's what I offer there. And it is one on one. And I have found that the one on one is actually it's just nice. And people just want they want personalized attention. They just do. There's something about it. So you're so the financial coaching element you do is, well, I was going to say just three Kundas questions. It's not just three Kundas questions, but it, it's the three meeting process you have around Kinder's questions the, yes. of discovering, learning their situation, the vision meeting, and talking about obstacles that they have to that they have to overcome and change, and then hopefully, if they have been aligned to the vision and have clarity about the obstacles that are blocking them, then you can get out of the way and send them on their way and they will they will go clear their obstacles because now they know exactly what they need to change to get to the vision that they just said they're really excited about. Definitely, yeah. And if they feel like they still need like directed financial planning advice, they can get that. They just can't get investment advice there because it's not a registered investment advisor. So generally people that I point through there are people who really they really don't need investment advice. They just need maybe a little bit of budgeting help, a little bit of tweaking. They need a little motivation, which is what Kinder's questions are great for and the, and the kinder process is really great for. And like my, my practice, like year three and on was always focused on behavior change, but I've never seen such good results with clients until we really started implementing the kinder process just because like there's something about getting really excited about something that's going to happen in the short term that really gets people moving that you can't really do in any other way. You have to figure out a way to generate energy for somebody and then also remind them of different motivators that they can use along the way that they come up with, not me. Like I, I can't tell them what's going to motivate them, but they have to decide what's going to motivate them along the way because like the energy wanes, you know, at day 31 right. is very different than day three. <laughs> and so you can imagine what day 265 looks like, right? It's if they don't have that like trigger that's going to motivate them, that's really going to remind them of like, okay, hey, like what are the results I want to have? then they're not really going to get what they, where they need to go. So a lot of really what happens in origin and also what happens in money owners is just helping people find those triggers to help them stay motivated. And, and so what do you charge for this coaching process? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know that off the top of my head. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to think. I think I was like $2,100 for a single person to go through the three meetings. And then I think it was 3,900 or no, 3,500 maybe for a couple. Sorry, I should have looked that up before I came on the podcast. So I guess it's it has not been as active lately. Yeah, it's not as active for sure. I definitely know my origin pricing a lot better. And then hourly after that is I do charge 400 an hour because that's what I make. So if they need like an extra hour or two after that to sort out some financial planning stuff, then they can have it. 
but yeah, it is. It's definitely in an elevated price. So this isn't even necessarily your your reach the masses element. I guess this one is sort of one extra one extra bar on the barbell that is a little bit further towards the middle. You've got the podcasts and the podcast is free. Book is you know a couple of dollars for a book. Origin is twelve thousand dollars plus at the other end. And then it sounds like this is this is actually still a little bit in the middle, but not necessarily high volume for you at this point. Yeah, exactly. And it's not high volume for a number of reasons. Origin really is the thing I've like poured my heart into for the last six years and made what it is today. And when I released Money Owners, it's two years old now. I mean, my son was, I think, eight months old, maybe, or six months old, something like that. Like, it wasn't the best timing on my part. <laughs> I don't know if there's really ever a good time to launch a business when you have young kids. But like the whole reason why Origin was born when it was, was because in my head, I was like, okay, if I can get my business to be three years old by the time I'm ready to start my family, then everything's going to be great. And I really had that three-year number in my head. I was like, because businesses are great at three years, you know, like I'm going to be great. And I get to year three and then I'm like, I am so much busier now than I was <laughs> in years one, two. Like I have a booming business now. What was I thinking? I probably could have actually had a kid in year one. Um, <laughs> then obviously I wouldn't have the kid that I have. But but yeah, it was like I had this moment where I was just like, okay, maybe there just isn't a good time to ever do this. You just kind of have to, you know, grit your teeth and do what you have to do to get it done. And then I kept getting these unqualified prospects through through Origin, and I kept being like, these people, they don't need financial planning. They just don't like. They need other stuff. Yeah, they need maybe they need a little help with student loans or they need some budgeting advice or maybe they just need like a quick overview on how to invest, but they don't need specific investment advice from me. And that's why money owners came to fruition for sure. And when it did, because I was just like, I wanted somewhere to put these people and I didn't even want to send them to a financial planning, another financial planner because they, they didn't need financial planning. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then like... The podcast was supposed to bring people in, but then I was inconsistent with that because I have a two-year-old. Well, at that time, I had a you know under one-year-old, and so yeah, you can kind of see why why one one is you know succeeded more than the other for sure. <laughs> and do you intend to sh shift that or try to change that? Are you happy with with where that is? Like, do you do you look at the coaching stuff and say, hey, I got to get back to that and build that up more, or do you do look at that and say? Uh, I guess actually the practice is in such a good place right now that um, I'm just going to go broad with the book and 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 focus with my clients at Origin and and that'll be the deal. Yeah, it's it's definitely the latter at least for now. I think that when my when my kids are both older, that I will probably have more time to devote to both businesses just because they'll need being less. Um, <laughs> but before that, I mean, I just, I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss anything with my kids. I just don't. Like right now I have, I have part-time help who she comes to two mornings a week. And then my husband sometimes helps in the afternoons if I really need it, or if I have like a call that I just can't take any other time with a client. I try to be accommodated with the clients who are already in my practice, but like, it's just the, the time constraints that I have are, they're just, they just are what they are. And I, I just don't have the time to turn money owners into what I think it will eventually be. And I don't even really want to. Like, I just, I want to be there for my kids. Like, I, I got to see every little thing that my son Alex has done since he was born because they really haven't missed anything. And just, I think that's powerful. Like, and that's just despite, like I'm putting that in the air quotes, yeah. despite running a 300,000 revenue practice, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, in spite of myself, I've somehow still managed <laughs> to have, I guess, have it all in a way. I mean, I do some like I'm not immune to feeling frazzled, right? Like I'm not perfect. And I don't always have like the balance I intend to have. But I try really hard. And the thing that I want most is like, the, my kids look at me as kind of as a rock, somebody who's always there for them, no matter what. That's what's most important to me. And my clients are really important to me too. Like my practice is really important to me. My family's always going to come first. And my clients kind of know that because that's the kind of people they are too, for the most part. So, and if I'm not there for them, like that's why Mark's there, right? Like that, that's why I have a full-time employee. I mean, I don't think right. people really need a full-time employee with 25 clients. Let's be serious. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but you've got them there because that's part of the the redundancy and the failover and the safety for clients and additional flexibility for you because he can step in for something. Yeah, definitely. And he does a lot of behind the scenes work that I otherwise would be doing that I would need to hire a nanny or somebody else to take care of my kids to do. So instead he, he does the work and I check the work and we bounce numbers back and forth when I, when I don't think it makes sense or he doesn't think it makes sense. And it's kind of, it's also really nice, I think, to have somebody looking over my shoulder with numbers because we're, we're not infallible. We're all human. And <laughs> even putting yep. something into software, you could still have a number that doesn't make sense. So, and not realize it at all and then show a wrong thing to a client. So like on all fronts, it's nice to have a full-time employee in my practice. And, and, you know, it frees up your time on a, on a tax deductible basis. That's, oh, that's totally. Yeah. Like, that was definitely you know, part of it. There's a benefit about having it through the business as opposed to like... <laughs> hiring hiring help on the other end to try to free up more of your time like there's uh, there's good tax arbitrage to this as well totally I, when i did the math on it i was like look like i can base i basically could pay the same amount because on, you pay your nanny on an after-tax basis you pay right. your employee on a pre-tax basis i can get way more hours out of my employee basically i mean not way more but more hours for my employee on a pre-tax basis than i could with a nanny on an after-tax basis and then, like, I have more freedom and flexibility to be with my family. It was like a slam dunk. It was like <laughs> all yeah. around. And the, and my clients have somebody else that they can rely on who and talk to and know and be there for them. Like, I, yeah, it just made so much sense. So I do want to go back quickly, though. And just there was another piece I, I, I was wondering about in the coaching business that you, you had mentioned a few times about how you keep this separate from your RIA. And I just want to understand that a little bit further because, you know, I, I know a lot of folks out there are starting to do financial coaching. Some are even trying to do financial coaching only businesses. We've had a few people on the podcast who are doing coaching, no investment advice and don't register as investment advisor because they're not giving the specific investment re recommendations that trigger RIA status. I don't know very many that is, are, are literally doing both at the same time, though. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding this right. Like you've if you've effectively got two entities like yeah. Origin Wealth, the RIA entity. And if you want financial planning advice, you contract over there with all the usual compliance stuff. And then money owners, this non-registered entity, well, I guess like the entity's registered, but like not registered investment advisor entity, where you're doing the podcasts and the books and even the financial coaching for some some substantial fees because you're still not doing anything that is specific investment advice recommendations that would trigger RIA status, and you just have to figure out like in which capacity are clients engaging me, and they get that paperwork and they pay those fees to that entity. Yep, that's exactly right. So two entities, there are definitely there are advantages and disadvantages to two entities for sure. 
the main one I could think of right is that you have to manage, like I manage two LLCs. So I have to do the paperwork on two LLCs every single year. I have to uh, do the accounting for two LLCs every single year. Thankfully, I have FA Bean Counters doing it for me in origin. And <laughs> the accounting on the other side is not so difficult. It doesn't take that much of my time. But yeah, I manage two different websites. So they're all they're separate. There's two different scheduling applications there, two different email accounts, two different everything. Because you really want to keep them separate because the whole point is not layering on all the RIA compliance to non-RIA activities, particularly things like podcasts and books that can get a little compliance heavy with with the RIA side. You keep them those external because they're not giving advice. And if it leads to a client, they contact you on the origin side, and then you have that conversation on the origin side in in appropriate registered form. Yeah, definitely. And I would say for sure, I get more traffic into origin than I get into money owners, believe it or not. And I think it'll be different after my book comes out because that'll like, I have an actual publisher is doing marketing and other things. And I've, and I've been doing the podcast rounds and everything else. So I think money owners will get some more traffic, but for the most part, hasn't really been a compliance headache because people really do come through origin to become a client. And then they, some, they get pushed to money owners basically when they're not at an origin fit versus the other way around, which does create some solicitation issues. But that said, like if a client is looking for, like maybe they found me through money owners, but they really are looking for financial planning and that's not something that I offer there, I can say, hey, I do offer that here if that's something that you want right. without you know it being like a huge solicitation issue. The real thing though is the reporting at the end of the every year. So anyone who has an RIA, you report on all your clients, you report on what they hold, you report on who they are, their, you know, are they high net worth, are they an individual, are they a business, are they an entity, right? All that stuff takes time and effort at the end of every single year. And either you do it yourself or you pay a compliance consultant to do it. So the only difference between what I have, like I would, I report on my regular 20, 25 clients like I normally would. And then I just report some small outside business activity. And that's pretty much it. Because I mean, I, I my business isn't really the, a big deal yet. I think when it becomes a bigger deal, it'll, it'll be a little bit different of a compliance issue. For now, it's not though. And that's something that I'm also loving kicking the can down the road on. <laughs> But yeah, there's something really nice about, okay, if I have, you know, another 25 people come through money owners that I don't need to deal with anything related to them on the compliance side and reporting on them and saying what I did for them and justifying my fees and everything else. So, so then I do have to ask, particularly if you're, you know, your drive right now is actually origin is driving activity of money owners more than money owners is driving activity to origin. Just, you know, it, it's all well and good, I think, for a lot of advisors to say, Hey, I'm just going to have a practice with only multimillionaires who pay $12,000 plus per client. And then the math gets really good. You know, small asterisk, don't know 25 multimillionaires to go, <laughs> go pick up and grab business from in order to make this work. So like, where do the clients come from? I mean, how did you, how did you get to the point where in a couple of years you're at your 25 multimillionaire clients paying an average fee of over $12,000? Yeah, I I mean, I wish I had a really good straightforward answer for you. I don't. I've always been referrals based. And I guess part of that has been luck for sure, and some of that is just meeting the right people at the right time and impressing them in one way or another and then they've sent me clients. But I feel like the longer I'm around and the like the net worth has kind of grown with my practice, right? Like I started with a lower net worth and over time that it, it's increased to where it is today and to where I'm talking to a, just a different client group because of it. It didn't start that way, though, for sure. I mean, the first person that I had to pay me in my practice paid me $375 a year. 
to put into perspective, right? I was like, oh my gosh, I need money so badly that I'm going to discount, 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 super discount you. And I worked really hard for that 375 a year. Uh Uh (laughs) Particularly now when just, as you said earlier, like you price your hour at more than $375 (laughs) now. So, but people refer, right? Like she referred somebody and the person that she referred, referred somebody else and they referred a group of people. And then the next thing you know, like it's usually like one or two, I have like a handful of people in my practice that refer everybody. And to the point where my mom was even kind of laughing because she was like, oh, did you take on any new clients this year? And I was like, no. And she goes, oh, what's going on? I'm like, well, my biggest referrer, she's on maternity leave. Like, I probably won't get clients for six months. And <laughs> sure enough, when she was like back at work and doing stuff, she thought of me and she sent people, you know, it's just it's just kind of one of those things where there are certain people that refer and I know and if they're busy, we're not going to get clients. And if they're not and if they do meet the right people, they're always willing to send them my way. And I'm OK with that. I think I, I think one of the things that's been really important for my practice to be where it is is that I've always managed my personal finances very strictly so that I could be in a position to wait for the right people and to say no to the ones that have been wrong because it's not like these 25 people just fell into my lap. It was many conversations with people that really that weren't right or conversations with people that weren't right who ended up in my practice who I then had to let go, which is never a fun conversation. So like, I obviously I wish that I could take that back and that I could only work with the people that I always wanted to work with from the beginning and that were right fit from the beginning. But that's kind of not it's just not how it works. Instead, like you end up with a couple of wrong fits. And then sometimes they send you the right fits. And then sometimes you have to let go of the people who even sent you the right fits. And it's not pleasant. But sometimes it's mutual. And I've noticed that as like, when when I have a conversation with somebody that like, we're not you know, we're not really fit for each other anymore. And maybe they want to go talk to somebody else. They're usually feeling it too. And there's a reason why. And it's, and it's because we really aren't the right fit for each other. So I think sometimes as, as planners, we have to recognize that, that like whatever you're feeling on your side is probably what the client is feeling too, because you're just not in that relationship the way you should be. So I am wondering though, I, you know, I think a lot of us talk about building, building through referrals and, you know, giving such great service and and advice to clients that it's remarkable and they want to tell everyone. But in practice, that just doesn't actually happen that way for a lot of advisors. I guess I'm just wondering, like, why, why is this working so well for you when it doesn't seem to work as well for some other advisors? Are they just, you know, not, not actually giving as much high service as they think they can? So it's just not really as referable as they think it is. Uh, it, like, are you, is there a particular, you're asking referrals or trying to drive them? Like, why is this working so well for you and not so well for a lot of others? Yeah, I love that question. I had an original ask for referrals. I guess it was year in your end of year two, when I realized I needed to do something. That was my first ask for referrals. And I crafted like a really nice email and I personalized it to every single person I sent it to, which was like, it was very time consuming. <laughs> and I did get I did get referrals from there. And then those people, what I focused on the most with the referrals that I got from that was having the initial meetings be so wow and exciting and something that they wanted to talk about, that they talked about it early on in their financial planning process with me. So it's like you go to a, I don't know, we've been using baseball, like you go to a really exciting baseball game. What do you do? You come home and you tell somebody about it, right? Like, oh, I saw this game and like this happened, you know, and that happened and it was amazing and I could see it super well. 
<laughs> I kind of had that in my head of like, okay, if like I can make this so awesome that like when they go out to dinner with their friends, they actually talk about this, then, then it would kind of be a way for people to refer. So the initial meetings have always kind of been crafted that way to be exciting. And I guess that's part of why it becomes so appealing to have this sort of kinder three-step process around the discovery and the vision, the obstacles early on. Like it's certainly not the conversation they're going to have with most other advisors. So it is sort of, it is remarkable in in and of itself. Like it becomes worthy of remarking because it's not the experience they're they're necessarily going to have anywhere else. It it strikes me as well that just the the nature of what you're doing and focusing in on sort of higher impact, shorter term goals, like, you know, you you like I'm just imagining the conversation with someone who's, you know, sharing out to their friends on Facebook, like the picture of strumming the guitar from the top of Machu Picchu. And people are like, what the heck? You were trying to make partner at your firm. Like, what are you doing on top of a mountain <laughs> strumming guitar? It's like, well, I got this awesome financial planner. And over the ex- uh, past 18 months, we figure out how to make this happen. Yeah. And I mean, someone exactly else is like, well, that. I want that. Like, I mean, not that Machu Picchu is my thing, but like, if you, you know, if you can do that kind of transformation over the past year or two, I want to know who you're working with because I, I got some dreams that aren't being fulfilled right now. And apparently your person knows how to make those happen. Yeah, definitely. I had a specific example of this. I had a client who worked at an advertising firm and we figured out how to get her to retire early, basically. And then actually she's not even a client anymore, which is kind of funny about it. Like, cause she's like, yeah, I could do this now. I know what I'm doing. And she, and she left and I was like, all right, great. But somebody at her firm was like, you're leaving. She's like, yeah, I'm retired now. She's like, mind you, 42. And he was like, what do you mean you're retired now? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? So she sent, she referred him and he has been one of like one of the best clients. We went to their wedding. They're like, they're going to have a baby soon. Like they're like really part of our family. They've referred people. Um, Him and his wife have referred people. They've invited us places to meet other people who could potentially be clients. So it's just sometimes these things just happen. I guess that's, that's the one interesting thing, right? Like, no one gets to talk excitedly like, I'm working with a new financial planner now. And in 27 years when I retire, this is going to be awesome. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> call me back in the 2050s and I'll tell you about how it's going. No, nor is it exciting like, oh, this is so awesome. I'm, new with, I'm working with a new financial planner and like we're saving so much more. Let me tell you all the things I used to enjoy that I don't get to do anymore because my planner has me saving more. Like I, it totally right. Yeah. Like our traditional approach doesn't exactly generate the kinds of things that people get excited to talk about. Whereas when you get down to these, you know, the stuff that surfaces from Kinder Street questions, I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who were reflecting on those questions for themselves as they, as they went. Like when you start getting to question number two about, you know, if you only have five to 10 years to live, what would you be doing? And of course the natural cue up is like, okay, so if you're not dying, maybe you should still be spending some time on those things. You know, when we start hitting that stuff that has a nearer term time horizon and is really high impact and transformational for our lives and our meeting and our you know purpose and fulfillment on earth, it's pretty hard not to start sharing those wins with all of your friends and family and everyone you know. And that's just a whole other type of referral than you should work with Morgan. We mm-hmm. only <laughs> lost 
17% in that recent market drawdown, and we're already up 1.7% over yeah, benchmark. Totally. And then for full disclosure, I mean, I get uh, probably about 20% of my practice has come in through internet type leads. Either people found me on LinkedIn, found me on Twitter, found me on NAPFA fee-only network, or also XY Planning Network. So I'm not 100% referrals. Okay. I do have a web pre- presence too. I'm just, I'm not as active as I think other advisors are on there. So I don't want to I, I can't give you marketing advice. If, if <laughs> I think maybe somebody else is more fit for that. But yeah, we do. I do get people from there for sure. And I have ticked my Twitter up a notch because I'm trying to sell my books. So I've been trying to like have good one-liners and things to get people excited and interested. You're not selling your book of clients. Like you're selling your book book, like the, yeah, the paperback yeah. book. My book. paperback <laughs> book. No, 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 no. My like, and yeah, like <laughs> all per- my <laughs> personal finance quick start guide book, not yes, not 25 my clients 25 book. clients book. No, I definitely wouldn't want to do that on Twitter. I'd probably want somebody who was a little more experienced. <laughs> so what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? Probably how much I've changed over the years. So yeah, I mean, I started my career as an equity options trader, and then I worked at two large wealth management firms. So there was a huge focus on investments, just unbelievable focus on investments. And I got my CFA during that time. And I was just like, I want to be a portfolio manager. I'm going to do anything to be a portfolio manager, even if it means I'm going to go start my own firm and be a portfolio manager, you know? (laughs) And and was that the original vision when you actually went out and hung your shingle? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be a portfolio. Like, I got my CFA. I'm going to be a portfolio manager and and manage my own way as a registered investment advisor. Let's go. Yep, exactly. It was like basically a fee only wannabe hedge fund manager. I guess is is how I would put it. Um, <laughs> and then it just became clear from working with people that that's just not. A, not what I should be doing with my time because I wasn't really, I wasn't generating like alpha, you know, like I was matching the market and sometimes not even matching the market, making bad decisions. And then, and so I was like, okay, maybe markets are efficient and I should go reread that section. And then it was also like clients, they don't care about that. Like they're not, they don't care about like the R squared on their portfolio and what the percentage drawdown, like they just don't care about that stuff. And it wasn't important. So like how we frame investments and how I present a client, their performance and how we look at asset allocation is very different now than what it was when I first opened my firm where there was a huge emphasis on it. And now it's not that we don't discuss it for sure. It's still important, right? Like clients entrust me with a lot of money (laughs) and I don't take that lightly. And I don't, and I don't just say investments aren't important and we're not going to focus on it, but they are secondary to somebody's life. The personal part of personal finance is the most important part. The investments support the personal And the investments are there to make sure that they can be on Machu Picchu with their guitar, right? Like, (laughs) they're not just going to get there. I mean, maybe some people will be able to just get there by like putting it in a savings account. But for most people, they they want those assets to grow and to be working for them so that later on in their life, they can do other things, go to other mountaintops and play guitar, right? Like, there's, it is important. And I think de-emphasizing it actually makes it makes it be so that a client can't talk to you about it in the way that they want to. One of the reasons why clients come to me is because they want investment advice, right? That's why they're going to a registered investment advisor. If they didn't need investment advice, then they can go to money owners. But Right. You've, you've got a coaching business for the non-investment side. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're hiring you for this one and paying you some pretty good fees to have that be part of the service. Totally. So it is important. Yeah. Like not every, not every meeting is going to like pull out their portfolio and start talking about it. 
But anytime that they want to talk about it, for sure, I'm there to talk about it. Absolutely. And I worked around the clock in March and April of this year, taking client calls, reassuring people, talking them through why their investments were doing what they were doing. I, it doesn't matter for them because of X, Y, and Z part of their plan, why that percentage, like why that portion of their assets were invested like that and why it's declined and why like, you know, Hey, you're not touching this for 20 years because in 20 years, this is what you want to do with that money. Not the money that you want from Machu Picchu is over here and it's still there. Don't worry about it. You know? So like things like that, where like a client wants to know, they don't want to know like the returns necessarily, or like, you know, the sharp ratio on their portfolio, but they do want to know why we're invested the way that we are and how it's helping and working for them and what, like how it affects them specifically. And that's the, I think the biggest change of what, like of who I've become as a business owner and as a financial planner over the years is, is like being able to recognize when clients want, like what they want to talk about in regards to their investments and what they need to talk about in regards to everything else. So what does a typical week look like for you at this point? Because I am I'm struck with this juxtaposition. And we kind of talked about like 10 clients and 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 only 10 or 15 hours a week that it takes to do stuff in the at work. But one of your problems with prospects was they wanted to schedule time to meet with you and all they could get was like one o'clock on Wednesday or something three Thursdays from now. <laughs> so what what is your like what is your calendar look like? How does this work? How is it scheduled? It sounds like it's very structured. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to understand what that structure looks like. Yeah, definitely. So Mondays in general are completely off. I almost never take meetings on Mondays. That's, I think, also something that's just been deeply ingrained in me as a child. My dad never liked Mondays. On Sunday night as a kid, he would always just be like, Sunday night sucks because I have to go to school on Monday. And so <laughs> when he started his own dental practice, he decided not to work on Mondays. And I don't know why, but like, I agree. Like, I don't like Sunday nights feeling like that. I know that you end up feeling like that on Monday nights. I don't feel like that because I don't work that much, but I'm sure some people <laughs> probably do on Monday night. If like Tuesday is the day that they start their week. But yeah, there's just something about it. So Mondays, I really don't do very much when, if I, if I need to, obviously I will, but I'll do it typically during nap time for my child. So if a client needs something, they're probably not going to hear from me until two thirty Eastern. Cause my son naps one thirty central. <laughs> But with the, so yeah, Mondays are off. Fridays, same thing usually. Fridays are completely off. Occasionally, same thing. I'll do something during nap time. Tuesday, Wednesday mornings, I work and I schedule everything that I do pretty much. Like I try to get client calls in on Tuesdays and Wednesday mornings. And I pretty much have from 9 a.m. until about 3.30 to take care of things on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. That doesn't mean that the whole days are filled with anything. It's just the amount of time that I have childcare. So I try to split that between like actually working, getting a workout in if I want to, because like, I also want to take care of myself napping lately, because I'm pregnant, uh, <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. fitting all that stuff in. So that uh, mostly on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, that's when the stuff gets taken care of. And then Thursday afternoons, if I need it. So especially during like quarterly reporting time, because around every quarter, we like invoicing to clients so that they know, hey, this is what you're being charged. We're not, you know, trying to like be non-transparent about that stuff. Here's also your per quarterly performance report. Here's also a summary of the markets. Here's also, hey, a nice short snap, like short snapshot of all the stuff that we're working on from a financial planning perspective. And I put that out for clients every single quarter. I do that. Mark doesn't, doesn't do that. And I just feel like it's a good hands-on way for me to stay involved with all my clients and know like what's going on and also like showing them that, hey, like we're here for you. And so during those times, I work more and I either need more time for my husband or we have more time for our nanny. But with the exceptions of those weeks, I'm usually really more at like about eight hours a week. 
in work. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, is this ever a challenge with clients? Or like, hey, Morgan, we'd like to meet with you next month. Uh, you know, we'd like to meet with you on Friday. Oh, no, sorry, I don't work on Fridays. Oh, okay, well, I guess we can start next week. Can we meet with you on Monday? Oh, no, I don't, I don't work on Mondays either. Like, you, you can't, you can't get me until, until Tuesday. Like, no, so I mean, does I, that yeah. come up? Does it get <laughs> it awkward with that? Up. Is at some point like we pay you a lot of money? It seems like you don't work a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good point. For some clients, it never even comes up. There are certain clients I know that need Mondays. They get Mondays, right? Like, okay. There are certain things where I'm just like, I say to my husband, "Hey, I have a call from nine to ten on Monday morning. Like, can you can you just help me for that hour?" And he does. And the the difference though is that I don't open my calendar up. On, on that time. So a client who's been with me for a long time who I know likes Mondays gets Monday. Same thing with a Friday. A client who's been with me for a long time gets a Friday. Say, like a client who works a lot during the week gets a Saturday even just because I know them. So like okay. my schedule is not always the same. The thing that's the same though is that when these uh, these meetings happen in random spots, the time gets blocked somewhere else, off somewhere else for me to do other things. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh gosh. Only one. <laughs> it's all glorious. Get your 25 multimillionaire clients. And- yeah, it's so, it's so glorious. No, I mean, I, I think, well, the first low point was definitely when I realized I needed to get a CFP. I've told this story in a lot of podcasts, but I'll, I'll tell it here too. I, a woman came into my office, a good referral, and she wanted a profit sharing plan. And I literally, I literally didn't know what that was. Like, that's how little the CFA curriculum covers that kind of stuff. And I was like, what the heck? How do I not know what this is? Like, <laughs> and I obviously I didn't get her as a client. And I went home and I signed up for the CFP. And I was like, it was so demoralizing. It was so, it was like, it's such a shame point in my life. I feel like to leave that meeting, just not only. Because you put so much into the CFA. I mean, like that is, yeah. <laughs> that is a high stakes, hardcore multi-year actually takes longer than the CFP program. Yeah. And then to like, just not only that, but like, it was, I know my face in that meeting was just, it showed like, cause I couldn't even hide how, how mortified I was that I didn't know what she was talking about. You know, like I couldn't even pretend I was just like, I'll have to look into that for you with a straight face, but also I could feel my face just getting so hot. And I left that meeting being like, ah, Oh, stupid. Ah, you know, like, ah, (laughs) so yeah, that was a, that was definitely a low point. There other low points. Are, so after my son was born was a really hard time. I didn't have the help in my practice that I have today. I didn't really take a, a maternity leave because I couldn't. I was working while I was in labor. Like that's just, I mean, I don't know why I thought that that was Oof. a good idea, but I decided I was like, well, like I'm just going to get as much done as I can until he gets here. And like, that's not what you're supposed to be doing in labor. Like you're supposed to be relaxing so that you have a, like a good experience when you're trying, when you meet your child. And we, my husband, like we didn't have the best experience, I think probably because of that. So that <laughs> that's definitely not going to be repeated this time. But it was also after he was born, it was like, I had, I still had client work. It was February when he got here. Like we had to make sure that all the clients, like I had to get all the 1099s to them and make sure that they could file their taxes. Meetings were delayed for sure. And people were understanding about that, but there were still day-to-day things that had to take place. And it was very obvious to me that I needed help. And leading up to that, I did hire a virtual assistant, but I didn't, 
I didn't train her enough and I didn't recognize that like she she's very experienced and she's still with me and she's fantastic. And but she wasn't experienced doing it it for my firm. And I think that this is something that like a lot of advisors don't recognize. You think that you hire somebody and they have experience that you're just going to plop them in and they're going to do everything that you want in your practice. And that's just not how it works. Like you need to be a leader and you need to show the person why it is that, that the thing that they're doing in your practice is so important. And it, I had to hit a really low point before I realized like, Hey, I'm not a good leader for this employee. Like I'm just not. And (laughs) I need to step up my game because it's not her fault that these things are going wrong. It's my fault. And that was like, that was definitely another low point and a learning experience for both of us. And my, and Mark, my other employee is now definitely a beneficiary of the things that Tracy and I learned together because (laughs) Mark and I didn't have those issues from the beginning because I've worked them out before he got here. So I think like that was definitely, it was a huge learning experience for me. It was definitely an ego crush of like, I'm not, I don't know everything. I really don't. And I need to recognize that a lot of the time. So what else do you know now that you wish you knew then? Like what, what do you wish you could go back and tell you from six years ago when you were getting launched? Hmm. Oh God, that's great. I mean, I think time management Maybe this is something that happens to parents (laughs) when their kids come and you're just like the things that used to take, you know, 20 hours a week, I can fit into 10. Like it's it's actually kind of amazing. I think, honestly, if I can go back, I I would really be able to prioritize a lot better. A lot of what happens is that you just don't prioritize because you don't have to. If you have all the time in the world, it's like when you if you give yourself six hours to do something that really only takes 10 minutes, you take six hours to do it. It's kind of like that. But and I've learned over the years that if I give myself 15 minutes, damn, do I work hard in those 15 minutes because it's got to get done, you know, (laughs) and it's the only time that it's going to like it's going to happen. So I time block a lot. I underestimate how long things are going to take me on purpose because I know myself and I know that if I give myself too much time to do it, I'll take all the time in the world to do it. And I don't need that time. I want that time for some for other things. And I think that in some ways, probably people think that that makes me a little bit, you know, crazy. Uh, (laughs) But in other ways, it makes me hyper productive and has really led to the success I've had today. And I think I probably would have had a lot of that success earlier if I were able to realize how to do it. Interesting. So deliberately scheduling yourself for narrower time blocking and scheduling yourself for narrower time blocks because it pushes you to get it done efficiently. Yes, definitely. And I mean, that's the whole reason why I'm able to work eight to 10 hours a week. It's not because there's eight to 10 hours. Like, I'm sure I can fill my schedule with 40 hours of work. <laughs> I definitely could. <laughs> right. But I don't want to, right? So I I deliberately crunch it down. And I think you can do that. Anyone can do it. You don't need to have a kid running around in the background to, to be able to prioritize. You just have to have something that you want to do just as badly and have competing, really competing priorities. So what advice would you give to newer advisors that are looking to become a financial planner and and get started in their careers? Yeah, I would say you have to be authentic to the vision you have for your own firm. It's something actually you and I discussed before this podcast is like you hear things, you you hear the success of other advisors and you think, oh, well, if I just do X, Y, and Z thing, then I'll be just as successful as them. And that's just not how it works. And I talk to a lot of people and a lot of different business owners while like throughout this whole process. And I hear about the different things that people do. And a lot of those things just aren't things that I can do. They're just not. They're not. They don't fit with my personality. They don't fit with the client base I want to have. 
I'm not trying to create this very large scalable business, right? Like I purposely created the small niche kind of business that I have. And I think that the more you're true to yourself and what you want and what you want, not only in your business, but outside of your business, the more the your practice is going to look a lot like what you want it to look like, even if you don't know what that is. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast around success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so you built this incredibly successful, I think even as you've turned a lifestyle practice, makes a great income for wonderful number of hours. But that's on the business side. And I'm wondering, how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I love that question. For me, it's balance. I don't always achieve it, but it's the thing I want the most in the world of making sure that I spend enough time with my family, making sure I have enough time with my clients, making sure I have enough time for me to do other things, making sure I have enough time with my spouse and balancing all of these things in a way where I still feel like I, I am doing it all in a way that is that, that I could be proud of really in a way that I'm, I'm proud of and that I, that I can just feel good about. And every day is not like that for sure. But I do try at the end of the day to think about it, to think to myself, okay, like what are the things I did today? Did it, you know, get me closer to the goal that I want to have of like living this balanced life or, you know, maybe am I earring two side on, you know, one way or the other. And sometimes it's not even a daily evaluation. Sometimes it's just looking at the whole week and thinking about it. But I think like the little check-ins are actually the thing that motivates me and keeps me kind of grounded and coming back to my real true purpose. And that's what makes me feel successful. And I feel really good about what I've built because of all the steps I've taken along the way to ensure that my clients are happy, my family is happy, and that I am too. Well, I just, I love the way that you've built with purpose for what you're doing, like specific clients, targets, you know, revenue goals, time goals, and all the rest. You know, I think a lot of us, like, we talk about trying to have better work-life balance, but we don't necessarily then do the follow-on things you have to change to make that happen. But I think one of the fascinating things about your story and your paths, like, you, you, you did change them. Like, I need a different focus in my business, so I went and got my CFP certification. I need a different structure for how this is working, so I'm going to rework my clients, and I'm going to change my fee schedule. And, like, you you make the alterations that it takes to actually move towards that vision. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's kind of the nice thing about being a small business owner is we, we can be so nimble. So if we don't take advantage of it, like what's the point of even doing it? I uh, mean, I love how you put that. I love how you put that. Well, thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us on the financial advisor success podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Michael. It was really, it was a pleasure. Likewise. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.